0: Greetings in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and Savior. It's really a privilege to to speak to you today about the grace of God in Christ. Um, It's always an honor to open up God's word, but it's a distinct honor to to open God's word and preach from it. Uh, So I'm very thankful for that. We have been going through the book of John. Uh, We are in uh, chapter 18. Um, We've been in chapter 18 for the last two weeks, three weeks, including this week. And it has been really a revelation of Jesus' servanthood, his voluntary death on our behalf, and and all the moving pieces in this account. Uh, The book of John is a beautiful book. Um, It's... It's, it has wonderful prose and it has a unique appeal to people like me, people like me who come from the east side of the world, because it talks about God's sovereignty, his transcendence, and things of that nature. And the book of John is also one of the simplest books. So people who know Greek uh, would know that the book of John has the most simplest form of Greek. Um, but it's very precious in what it gives us. The theological insights um, that we see in the book of John are priceless. Um, Why I say that is because oftentimes when we come to the Bible, we treat it um, as if it's just a boring document. But the Word of God is not a boring document. It's been given to us through inspiration. Uh, God God has used human beings And he has inspired human beings to write his word in a way that could be understood. So God did not inspire a TikTok video. He he inspired a written document in language form so that we would read and understand God's goodness to to us. And it's all about Jesus Christ. And I want to point out a few things before we jump into today's sermon. Um, One of the things that I want to point out is that the book of John and other books in the Bible use different literary forms. Why why I say that is I think it's important for us to understand that the the Bible is sophisticated in what it communicates. So you would see metaphors, similes, parallelisms, reverse parallelisms, and sometimes ironies, um, and all of these things in the Bible to showcase God's God's word and God's way in a very unique way. Uh, today we're gonna to be talking about the last 12 verses in John 18, uh, but um, it's filled with ironies. These last 12 verses are filled with ironies, but I just want to take this next 30 minutes, 30 minutes or so just to point out the, the main four ironies that I see. So I would say the word irony a lot Uh, through these uh, next uh, 30 minutes, and I hope that you'd be able to see them through me. And the reason I want you to see these ironies is because I want you to see the ironic way in which God works in all of our lives, especially when we look at our lives. We think of our lives as boring sometimes, and especially when we are struck with suffering in our lives, we lose hope. But God has a unique way of talking to us, There is a counterintuitive way in which God has revealed himself to us. Um, God's wisdom is not man's wisdom. Um, So I want you to see these ironies and see Christ in those ironies. The first irony is rubbish religiosity, as I call it. And when you see this irony, I want you to see that in your darkest moment that God is sovereign, that he is in control. In irony two... I'll be talking about a kingdom that is upside down. And when I talk about this kingdom that is upside down, I want you to know that when life falls apart, you belong to another kingdom. When I talk about the irony three, I want you to see the, the reverse way in which God interrogates Pilate. And I also want you to know that there is a king who deeply cares about you and your needs. And the fourth irony, I'll be talking about Redemptive reversals, how God reverses certain things in our lives. And I want you to see that and see and know that you have been saved from the wrath of God that we deserve. Before we get into the text, uh, let me pray. Gracious God, I come before you and thank thank you for your word. Thank you that it communicates truths. To us, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who came and dwelt among us. And thank you for the Holy Spirit, through whom we have been given new birth and given um, security. Thank you that he teaches us your word, and he illuminates the scriptures to us, and he turns the light on. I thank you that, that I don't have to do all the work. Thank you that the power of preaching is not in me, and it's in you. Thank you that, that these people who, whom you have called have ears to hear. I pray that in the next few minutes that you would give them attention. I pray that they would be able to see you, your truth, um, as you have revealed in these verses. I pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, John chapter 18. Um, I'm going to read these verses um, and then we'll jump into the ironies. Um, John 18, verse 28 to 40. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was very early, and they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Therefore, Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If this man was an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. So Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, We are not permitted to put anyone to death, to fulfill the the word of Jesus, which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. Therefore, Pilate entered again into the praetorium, and summoned Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, am I not a Jew, am I? Your nation and the chief priests delivered you to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, Pilate said to him, So are you a king? Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this reason I have been born, and for this reason I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. So there is drama in these verses. Uh, The scene is set. Uh, We we learned two weeks ago that Judas betrays Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is arrested and interrogated by the Jewish authorities. Peter, one of his closest disciples, had denied him just three times right before this account. He's now taken and handed over to one of the Roman authorities, namely Pilate. There are a lot of moving pieces in this account. There is tension. There is political tension, not just geopolitical tension, but also tension between heavenly authorities and worldly authorities, so tension of cosmic proportions. And the scene takes place in, in the Praetorium, the governor's headquarters, in a, in a very dramatic fashion. It begins outside the Praetorium with a dialogue between Jews and Pilate. Then it moves inside the Praetorium for a private discussion between Jesus um, and Pilate. Then it moves outside again. So you see a conversation taking place outside the Praetorium, inside, and then outside. So it moves from outside to inside to outside. I want you to to see what's going on here as we look at these next verses. The first irony that we see um, in these first four verses is is not one hard to spot. right? There are two two worldly worldly authorities fighting over a claim to, to crucify Jesus. But the power does not ultimately belong to these authorities. It doesn't belong to Rome. It doesn't belong to Jerusalem. Jerusalem wants to kill her Messiah, and Rome wants to find ways to justify it. And as you can see in verse 31, Pilate's argument is this. He says... If your laws can so easily, with little qualifications, declare that Jesus' acts are evil, then you should just as well execute judgment upon him. So if you can bring him up willy-nilly just like this, why don't you go ahead and kill him yourselves? But Jews respond and say, we are not permitted to put anyone to death. Um, And the commentator, the narrator says, this was to fulfill the word of Jesus, which he spoke. Um, when, when we come to passages like this, and we see things like, um, we are not permitted to put anyone to death, or another translation would be, this would be unlawful for us to put Jesus to death, we can, we can, go, both, we can go, uh, go two ways. We can say, this, may happen, this, this is happening because Jerusalem is under Ro- Roman occupation. So the Jews don't have uh, the right to kill Jesus. Or we could actually look at the Gospel of John and and see what, what John means by this. And I think in the Gospels, it is not always useful, or we are not permitted, refers to the law of Moses. So I don't think it's a reference to Roman law alone. I think it's a reference to the Ten Commandments, and other laws concerning the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill. So what these Jewish authorities are doing is they are ironically pronouncing a word of self-condemnation. They know that it's unlawful for them to kill Jesus. So it's, they're, they're, they know that they're conflicted. So it's really a confession that they were about to do the very thing that they were not allowed to do especially during the Passover. So you see that irony, and you see another irony. You see that they are very careful to to be ritually pure uh, for the Passover. They're celebrating the Passover, um, so they make it a point not to enter the Roman Praetorium. But in doing that, they have trampled upon the true Passover, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as you know, in the Old Testament, the Passover was a celebration of Israelites' liberation from Egypt, right? Um, and it was, a, it was a faint picture of the redemption that was to come in Jesus Christ. And the, the Israelites celebrated the Passover every year to remember God's deliverance. But these Jewish people and me, if I were there, I would have given up Jesus to get my own way. He came to his own, but his own rejected him. And he was rejected and given over to Je- over to death. And the narrator concludes that section by saying, this was to fulfill what Jesus had spoken about the manner of his death. That Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, would be lifted up on a Roman cross, and he would be the serpent in the wilderness, so that everyone who looked upon him with faith may have eternal life. So it's, it's very ironic that these Jews would hand over Jesus on Passover day uh, to be crucified. But even that, their vileness is, is prophesied by Jesus. It's, it happens under the guiding hand of God. And as we see in this text, these proceedings begin early in the morning. Right? You recall that Judas comes to betray Jesus in the middle of the night. And he's arrested in the middle of the night. they bring Jesus to Annas and Caiaphas also in the middle of the night to try him. Peter's denial takes place in the very early mornings, early hours of the day um, before the rooster would crow and now Jesus is brought to the Roman authorities early in the morning. There are, we can We can really um, ponder why. This may have been the case. Maybe the Jewish authorities arrested Jesus at night to keep everything private because Jesus was loved by many. Or the Romans preferred getting um, judiciary matters done early in the morning so that they can proceed with the punishments quickly. But one thing is clear. The uh, The Apostle John is utilizing a dark and light contrast thematically throughout the book. And he's showing us that th- these events take place in the darkness. And there is a lot of wickedness happening in, these, um, in, in this dark scenario. But we know as Christians, even darkness is a light to God. His purposes come to pass even when circumstances are wicked. So you would remember in Psalm 139, David says, If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night. Even darkness is not as dark to you, O God. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. The irony is this. Neither Jerusalem nor Rome truly has the authority over the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. In other words, like Pastor Kyle said a few weeks ago, the greatest evil to, to have ever happened in the world The death of the most innocent man at the hands of evil people was not an accident. This is a predetermined death of God. And this was the precise means by which God would bring salvation to the world. Octavius Winslow uh, put it this way. He asked the question, who delivered up Jesus to die? Is it Judas for money? Or is it Pilate? for fear of man, or is it Jews for envy? No, it is the Father for love. What wonder it is that you and I and all of us us who believe in Jesus Christ are brought into the family of God by this great salvation, by the voluntary death of God in a Roman cross. That's irony one. Irony two is this upside down kingdom that Jesus talks about. Jesus talks about this in verses 33 to 36. Towards the end, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. This is a response to Pilate asking him this question. He asks him, are you the the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, are you saying this on your own initiative? or others are others influencing your decision and Pilate says i'm not a Jew am I? your own nation and the chief priests delivered you to me. What have you done what 's happening here is jesus is being asked this question of of sedition really like he's being he's being blamed to uh, he's he's being blamed to uh, to 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 initiate a coup against Rome. He is being told that he is trying to defeat Rome by earthly means. But Jesus is saying, no, I'm not trying to fight against you, Romans. I am here to do something else, because my kingdom is not from this world. But in these texts, we must be very careful to note what Jesus does not say. He doesn't say that this world is not the sphere of his authority. We know by creation that God has authority over everything. Every square inch is his. He is king over everything. But he is only saying this to say that his authority is not of human origin. Jesus' kingdom is not grounded in this world or established by the means of this world. His kingdom has an authority from above, above and beyond the authority of Jerusalem and Rome. All the other kingdoms, the kingdom of Rome, the kingdom of Jerusalem, are a subset of Jesus' kingdom. Jesus' kingdom reigns over all things. But we should also be quick to note that we we heard similar language in John chapter 17. When John talks about how Christians are called to be in the world and not of the world, he's saying Christians' union with Christ. We are united to Christ. It makes us participants in the world. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. That is, our our, um, originality does not come from the world. We are different. And you see, uh, you remember this in Jesus' prayer, right? Jesus praying for the disciples. He says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. I do not ask that you take them out of this world, that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of this world, just as I am not of the world. So there's a similar thing happening here. Just like we are in and not of the world, Jesus' kingdom and his kingship is in but not out of the world. There is a similar relationship there. But we also know that Jesus reigns in the hearts of his people. When Jesus makes us Christians, when we become Christians, we have... We have a heart of flesh that listens to God, that knows God, understands God, and praises God, and worships God. So Jesus' reign is really everywhere um, in that sense. So it's not something that we are waiting for. It's already here. There's an already not yet element to Jesus' kingdom. And Jesus is reigning, John Calvin says, whenever he subdues the world to himself by the preaching of his word. And that is true here as well, right? We are here to listen to God's word. And if we are truly Christians, we obey God and his commandments. As Christians, we live in two different kingdoms. By birth, we have been born into the kingdom of man. By new birth, we have been born into the kingdom of God. The first kingdom, the kingdom of man, is rooted in a love of self. It's a selfish kingdom. It seeks the praise of men, and it is a natural rebellion against God. The kingdom of God, though, is rooted in love. And in the love for God, it seeks the height of God's glory. So there is a a clash between these two kingdoms, two value systems, and two ultimate judgments. The kingdom of man depends on taxes, politics, politicians, governments, and economy. The kingdom of God is dependent on God alone, and it operates by the supernatural means of God's spirit, his word, his sacraments, and the church. That is why church is so important. The kingdom of God is unlike any kingdom of man. It's an upside-down kingdom. Ever since the fall in in Genesis 3, God has been working in human history to save a people for himself. He's been saving people like adam people like eve people like abraham people like moses and the israelites and he's is saving all of these people to be part of his kingdom and god is reconciling a people for his own possession the people of god are made up not just of jews but also from every tribe tongue and nation it's a multi ethnic multi cultural kingdom so that's why you you remember Abraham's calling in Genesis 12. When uh, Abraham is asked to leave his country, his kindred and his father's house to go to a land that God would show him. Abraham's basic identity as a human being is ripped asunder. His home country, he's asked to leave. His immediate family, he's asked to leave. His father's house, his clan, he's asked to leave. And it's similar for us as Christians. The Christian's identity is very similar to Abraham's identity. We are saved from the futile ways of our countries. We are. We are saved from the futile ways of our families. We are saved from the futile ways of our clans for God's possession. We are saved for a kingdom, a city that is not built by human hands, a city whose architect and builder is God like Hebrews 11 would say. So as Christians, we have a better kingdom, a better kingdom in the lasting kingdom. Um, This kingdom is different. It's an upside-down kingdom. Uh, We like to think of victories in in different ways than the Bible speaks of victories. Um, But in reality, the kingdom of God is the, the right-side-up kingdom. It's the right way of thinking about God's kingdom. And we often get caught up in, in the affi- affairs of the day, right? We, we, we get swayed by politics all the time. Um, and uh, one of the most imp- interesting things is uh, there are only two figures in history who get abused uh, all the time. The first one is Hitler. Uh, we, if we don't like someone, we, call them, we tell them that they like Hitler. And the second most abused person is Jesus. Both the right and the left claim Jesus. But Jesus says he is unlike both of them. His kingdom is a different kingdom. So my call for you today is not to put your hopes in in, in the government. Not in Joe Biden. Not in, in the coming of Donald Trump again. But really... <laughs> Our hope is really in a kingdom that is coming. But it's already here because it's Mm. breaking in. It has broken in, in the person of Jesus Christ. And this kingdom is ever-expanding. So put your hopes, really, in the kingdom to come. Because Jerusalem fell about 30 years after Jesus said these things. Rome was brought to her knees a few hundred years after, in the 5th century. The British Empire came to an end. The Berlin Wall, Berlin Wall fell down. The Soviet Union, despite the efforts of Putin, was disso- dissolved in my lifetime. And The Communist Party in China will eventually crumble. And someday, soon, these United States of America will never be great again. It will be a footnote in human history. But do not be alarmed. Disappointed? Maybe. Concerned? Yeah. You could be concerned. (laughs) Infuriated uh, frequently. But know that as kingdoms rise and fall, there is one kingdom that will have no end. So we move to irony three in verses 37 through 38. It goes like this. Therefore, Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this, I have been born. And for this, I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Jesus Christ here is a king, but his lowly appearance in front of Pilate may may have given Pilate the wrong impression. And we can see Jesus suffering and get the wrong impression of who this man is. But this man, standing as a prisoner before the worldly governor, brought in as a criminal, who has no emblems of a worldly king, is really the king. The irony is that there is a contrast between Jesus' kingship and his appearance. Do not be fooled by appearance. Pilate's category of what makes a king king is too small to contain the fullness of King Jesus. This is why Jesus explains that his kingdom and his kingship is connected to his mission. He says in verse 37, in verse 37, he says, um, What does he say? (laughs) In verse 37, he says, for this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify through the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So he's connecting his mission to truth. He's saying that the nature of my kingdom, the nature of my rule, is through truth telling. I speak truth, and as a result of my speaking truth, there will be people created who can listen to truth. So truth-telling is connected to truth-hearing, and that is how God rules the world. That is how Jesus rules the world. The Bible says that Jesus spoke the universe into existence. When he commanded, he said, let there be light, and there was light. He creates what he commands. Similarly, by speaking and testifying to the truth, he creates people who can hear his voice. When Jesus calls out to this dead man, Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus comes out of his grave. So this truth-telling mission of Jesus is central to, to his, mas- his mission. But it's not an abstract, up-in-the-clouds kind of truth-telling, because Jesus himself says that he is truth in John 14, 6. It's a very overtly personal kind of truth-telling. His purpose was not just to speak truth, that would have been enough, but his pur- purpose was to manifest what is truth. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and this is exactly why Pilate is in trouble. And growing up, you can you you hear all these sermons about Pilate and his character, and you can actually see who Pilate is in from uh, Pilate is from the Gospels. A lot of things can be said about him from the Gospels. He's proud. He's cruel. He's shrewd. He's definitely a man pleaser, and he listens to his wife, which may be a good thing. And he's a coward, right? Because he really claims neutrality with Jesus. But we often think of Pilate as a matter of fact kind of figure. um, When we think of Jesus' death, he's just a matter of fact guy. But in doing that, I think we dehumanize Pilate. Pilate was a real person, and this is history. These accounts we are given in the Bible are not made-up stuff to, to titillate our minds on a Sunday morning. right? These, this is history. Pilate probably had a mom and dad. He did have a mom and dad. He was born. That's surprising, right? He grew up. He went to school. He probably went to the best law school in town. Um, he went into public service. He probably wanted to make a big deal um, out, of, out of who he is. Um, he made a name for himself. His parents were probably very proud of him and what he had done. He was probably very proud of himself um, and his achievements. To rise to, to the level of governor is no, um, it, it's, it's, it is a big deal. He had a wife and probably had some children. He was a real man. But Pilate is not really remembered for any of these reasons, really, in history. He's immortalized in the Apostles' Creed, Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. He's immortalized in history because of how he dealt with Jesus. There is a lot of flippancy in his communication with Jesus. And Pilate probably thought that he was in charge of this conversation. But the irony here is, it's Pilate who is being interrogated. This is not so much, uh, so much Jesus' trial before Pilate as much as it is the trial of Pilate before Jesus. He is pushed to make a decision. Every man and every woman in human history, when they're confronted with who Jesus is, as he's revealed in scripture, has to make a decision. In the Gospel of John, Jesus is portrayed in his majesty and in his misery, two extremes. His majesty in healing people, raising people up from the dead but also in his misery as he's beaten his um yeah he he is he's killed the call of of the writer of this gospel is so that we would believe in Christ he says these things are written in these books so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the son of god and by believing you may have life in his name. There is really no neutral ground when it comes to Jesus. As C.S. Lewis once put it, you have to either call him a liar or a lunatic or you have to submit to him and make him your Lord. There, is no, there are no balls, metaphorically speaking, to wash your hands off the responsibility of making a decision. There is no place to hide from God not in the realm of neutrality. We don't know this for sure. We don't know what happened to Pilate for sure. But there, there are some historians who believe that um, Pilate later killed himself. Um, the Orthodox Church, Eastern Orthodox Church, actually teaches that. What we do know for sure is that there is one day Pilate will stand in the halls of Jesus, where Jesus will judge him. What is truth, Pilate flippantly asks. The Bible says much about the truth of Jesus and his kingship. In the book of Hebrews, we are told that Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. And Jesus, after his resurrection, if you remember, on the way to Emmaus, on the road, he is walking with the disciples and he says, "The the, the Old Testament is about him. In the New Testament is also about Jesus. In fact, good readers of the Bible can identify Jesus as prophet, priest, and king from Genesis to Revelation. In Genesis, he is the king who was promised, the king of peace. In Exodus, he is the king who delivers, up, delivers Israel from Egypt, leading them out of their exile. In Numbers, Jesus is the king who quenches thirst of his people in ser- the serpent who was lifted up in Leviticus he is the king of holiness who lives in the midst of his people in Deuteronomy he is the law-giving king in Joshua he is the divine warrior king in Judges he is the king who judges with righteousness in Ruth Jesus is the king who redeems the kinsman redeemer in first and second Samuel he is the shepherd king who faces our giants in first and second kings he is the king who rules with truth and grace, with love and justice. In 1 and 2 Chronicles, he is the restorer of God's kingdom. In Ezra, he is the scribe king, whose laws preserve the saints. In Nehemiah, he is the architect king, who builds the walls of safety. In Esther, he is the advocate in the throne room, risking his life to th- save ours. In Job, he is the living redeemer, the living king, the gracious and compassionate. In the Psalms, he is the singing king the song leader. In Proverbs, he is the all-wise king, wisdom personified. In Ecclesiastes, he is king over meaning and madness. In Song of Songs, he is the king who loves his queen. In Isaiah, he is both the king of majesty and misery. Isaiah is very much like John, um, the king who is seated on a throne and the king who is rejected and despised, the one who would be wounded for our transgressions and iniquities so that we might be healed. In Jeremiah, he's the spirit of a king who writes God's laws on our heart, the weeping prophet king. In Lamentation, he's the king whose steadfast love never ceases, whose mercies never end. In Ezekiel, he's the king of visions, the temple king. In Daniel, he's the architect of history. The king riding on the clouds. In Hosea, he's the king who unconditionally loves his queen. In Joel, he's the king who restores all that the loc- locusts have eaten. In Amos, Jesus is the king whose justice rolls on like a river. In Obadiah, he's the king who brings peace on judgment, um, who brings judgment on evil. In Jonah, he's the king who calls people to repentance. In Micah, he is the everlasting king who rescues and gives peace born to us in Bethlehem in Nahum he's the avenger of God's elect in a refuge in times of trouble in Habakkuk he's the king who gives reason to rejoice even when the fig trees do not bud in Zephaniah he's the reforming king who exchanges our shame for his honor in Haggai Jesus is the king who cleanses us the fountain of living water in Zechariah he is the king riding on a donkey in Malachi he's the messenger king the son of righteousness who will rise with healing in his wings in Matthew, Jesus is the king of the Jews. In Mark, he is the crucified king. In Luke, he is the king born in a manger, the king of the outcast. And in John, Jesus is the king of the cosmos. In Acts, Jesus is the risen king whose kingdom spreads from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. In Romans, he is the king of righteousness who justifies the ungodly. In First and Second Corinthians, Jesus is the king of holiness and the king of weakness. In Galatians, he is the king who justifies alone by faith and frees us from the curse of the law. In Ephesians, he is the king who unites, the one who uh, fights our battles. In Philippians, he is the king who supplies our joy. In Colossians, he is the preeminent king, the one who holds everything together. In First and Second Thessalonians, he is the king who encourages and admonishes. In First and Second Timothy, he is the mediator king. In Titus, he is... The faithful pastor, the king of our souls. In Philemon, he's the king who liberates us and restores us to service. In Hebrews, he's the king who fulfills all the promises. In James, he is the king of our faith in trials. In first and second Peter, he's the king of sojourners, people who are sojourning in this world. In first second and third John, he is the king of love, truth, and discernment who intercedes for his people. In Jude, he's the king who weeps. Um, and the king who keeps us from stumbling. In Revelation, he's the king of eternity, the Alpha and the Omega, the living, reigning, and returning king. This is why the Apostle John would say, grace to you and peace from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has released us from our sins by his blood. He has made us into a kingdom, priests, to God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever." I am the Alpha and the Omega, says Jesus, who is and who was and who is to come. So that's the kind of ironic kingship that we see in scriptures. The the last irony is in the last two verses. Pilate now is convinced that Jesus is innocent but he also wants to please the Jews. So he's proposing something. He's saying, but you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release to you the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. We are told that it is the custom to release a prisoner every Passover because Pilate is convinced that Jesus is innocent. It's likely that he's proposing the release of Barabbas, thinking that the crowd and the religious leaders who are inciting the crowd would let Jesus free because of how notorious a criminal Barabbas was in comparison. Maybe he thought they wouldn't want a robber, a murderer, and an insurrectionist. They will really come to their senses. And we would look at this and say, Yeah, these stupid people giving up Jesus um, for Barabbas. In one sense, I think we would have done the same thing, because we love our sins so much. So ironically, we are the religious leaders and the people wanting Jesus crucified. But I think John is highlighting Barabbas as a robber for some reason. I think it's pretty interesting. Remember. In, in Roman times, robbery was not a crime worthy of crucifixion. Um, remember also that Barabbas is portrayed in the other Gospels in Matthew, Mark and Luke, as an insurrectionist, a seditionist, a murderer. My hunch is that the Apostle John, writing at the end of the first century, wants us to help us connect the Barabbas of Matthew, Mark, and Luke to the other two robbers who were crucified with Jesus. The two thieves on the cross, the one on the right and the one on the left, were probably companions of Barabbas. Barabbas was probably the worst robber of these robbers. And he was offered up in exchange for Jesus. And he was probably the robber in chief. So the the innocent, is given over to death for the robber in chief. And it's really a small picture of the gospel. When we read narratives like this in the, in, in the gospels, we should know that in, in the narrative, Jesus is revealed. So Alistair Berg says this, and I love this quote. He says, in the Old Testament, Jesus is predicted. In the gospels, Jesus is revealed. In the Acts, Jesus is preached. And in the epistles, Jesus is explained. So what's going on here would be later explained by the disciples in the epistles. So Peter probably has this in mind when he says, Christ also suffered once for sins, so that the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So the righteous for the unrighteous. There's an exchange going on here. For our sake, Paul says, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul then says, do you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, the idolaters, the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. But such were some of you. But you were washed, and you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of Jesus. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we read these passages, the Old Testament should ring in the background. The Lord, our God, is merciful and righteous. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us He will tread over our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sin into the depths of the sea. He does not deal with us according to our sins. And he doesn't repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the steadfast toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So I have a dream, really. I have a dream that that one day I would see Barabbas. It's, it's just a dream, there's nothing in the Bible that tells me. And it's a hope, because what's happening to Barabbas is really a picture of what's happened to me and what's happened to you i want to ask him if he really understood what was going on he probably woke up that morning think that he was going to be one of the thieves nailed to the three one of the three crosses but he probably heard the jailer come in and open up the gate and i wonder if he if you got a chance to go to the mountain, the Mount Calvary, and see the innocent being crucified for his sins. If you are of the truth, if God has spoken truth to you, and you're of the truth, you probably resonate with this. If you have tasted the goodness of God and his forgiveness, you are of the truth and I hope that you will dream with me. But if you're not of the truth, you probably don't resonate with this at all, and I care about you. The point of preaching is to hold Christ up and call you to look at him. Know Jesus Christ as king. He is king. But more importantly, know him as a king who lays down his love, life for you that's why this hymn is so precious. And I don't know if Barabbas sang this, but it goes like this. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is justice, justice satisfied to look on him and pardon me. God, thank you for amazing grace. Thank you that you set prisoners free. Thank you that you rule over all things. Thank you that you rule over our lives. I pray that you would be glorified in, in these truths and that your people would hear these truths and know you as king. Thank you, and I pray these in your name. Amen.